Hello and welcome back to Constantine Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Tower of Swallows Chapter 3. So this is a lighter chapter. It's a chapter that is uh, from a different, uh, from various different perspectives, catching us up with the Hansa, uh, some Nilfgaardian schemes, what happened to Yennefer, Triss, and all that jazz, um, as well as some comedic asides. Um, because, you know, the last chapter ended with, you know, the beheading of teenagers. So you kind of need something to distract you while still not, you know, going completely off course, you know. Uh, to, to quote uh, J. Michael Straczynski, uh, creator of Babylon 5, which I covered just before I did Witcher, was, you know, make it as dark as you want, but for the love of God, crack a joke. Um, and so this is really where that's all at. Uh, this chapter is really setting up some domino pieces, setting up some plot stuff, but mainly here to be primarily comedic, just so that we can have a breather before we get back into the pure hell that is series life currently, uh, in the following chapter. Uh, so, uh, this chapter's main through line is Dandelion's book. Um, we've heard about it before. There were some excerpts in previous books of, uh, half a century of poetry. Uh, and I talked about how his writing process would become kind of important, I believe, in Eternal Flame when we really delved into his writing process for a bit. Um, and that's one of the, the funniest through lines of this chapter is them constantly making fun of that book. Uh, you know, he's a sensitive creative. Um, whenever there's not an excerpt from it in this chapter, it's because he's fallen asleep and not writing anymore. Uh, the, the writing supplies were stolen from Queen Meave's army. Um, and then of course the excerpt at the end about, um, a potential draft of, uh, of half a century of poetry being burned. Um, now there are various jokes in there. Uh, first of all, the naming convention of half a century of poetry. He wants to call it 50, uh, like 50 years of poetry. Poetry is an art form that has been around so long. It's nearly incalculable. Regis points out that, you know, you're not even, uh, you know, you, you, one would presume from the title that you're writing it from the, the perspective of 50 years, but you're younger than that girl. It says, you know, you're, you barely even started, uh, you know, you, you're, you're not even 40 yet, and yet you are, uh, writing this, and you, uh, started, only started seriously taking poetry, uh, as your job when you were 19. So, like, th this is very presumptuous of you. Um, and, and they talk about that the, you know, if he embellishes the Hansa, that's fine, they don't really care all that much because by the time that this releases, they'll, they'll be either long dead and buried or so old they won't care. But for Regis, he does because 50 years to him is nothing. He's been around for thousands of years and will continue to be around for thousands of years. And so, uh, you know, for him, it's just like, okay, can we focus on better details? And then uh, Regis giving him the uh, 50 years is nothing. Uh, but for other people, it is a lot of things, but to make it sound snappier, let's go half a century, uh, half a century of poetry. So that's the origin of the book. And then the, the aside at the very end of the chapter about the, uh, presumed, uh, you know, burning of, uh, Dead Alliance half a century poetry, though we get excerpts from it, which hints at the fact that it was potentially published, uh, that basically that this was 
a previous draft. And there's the that joke of you have to pry from my cold dead hands, and it, it was found in a tube that was right next to, uh, you know, a dead person that may or may not have been dandelion. Um, and it's a joke not only at Dandelion's expense and the um, flightiness of, of history and the way that certain important documents can be lost to time, but also it is a joke on the Dark Ages and the way we treated historical artifacts back then, as well as our, you know, even our current day respect of history. History is invariably written by the victors. As in, as such, it is it comes with a certain bias, and that bias has to be picked through by historians to interpret fact from fiction from the bias. And because of that, there's also tendencies to rid ourselves of the uh, uglier parts of history. Um, history should be impartial, should be a factual telling of events, but it all comes down to who's writing it, why they're writing it, etc. And because of that, a lot of the times our history focuses on big people, so kings, queens, generals, never the little people, quote-unquote, never the ordinary person. Um, and because of that, we, uh, when we do discover these kind of things, we assume an importance that isn't necessarily there. Um, and so if it's not of a particular standard, sometimes that's written out of the history because it's not important. Dandelion's, you know, draft being found by these diggers, being stolen from the archaeologist uh, archaeologists by this digger, presumed to be a grand treasure of some historical importance and turns out to just be a draft of a manuscript that they burn. You know, that, that's how history has been treated. You know, if it's not of importance back in the day, we wouldn't detail it, which is why a lot of our bits of our history is fragmented or unsure. The Dark Ages in particular were a time in which history was so controlled by the church, uh, you know, especially in the Western world, that uh, it all took on a religious bias, and anything that they didn't deem as worthy, they got rid of. That's where canonicity comes from. That word literally is about, you know, the Catholic Church chopping up the Bible and deciding what is true and what is not. All because of their then, you know, appraisal of the book. Um, the, uh, the Library of Alexandria burning also le led to a lot of history being lost. And so, I have a friend who is an historian. And, matter of fact, he's the guy who got me into Witcher a long time ago. It's weird how things come back like that. And uh, he he talked about that uh, when he was writing his dissertation when he was in university, that when it comes to, to a certain point in history, there's just no truth. You can't find it. So you have to read all these sources and pick out and hopefully disprove you know, what is false, and pick out the commonalities and hope it's all true. So there are certain things just lost. Like, for instance, you know, to take a very easy example, the Roman con uh, conquering of uh, of Britannia, which, you know, uh, led to the roots there, you know, of the Anglo-Saxons and blah, blah, blah. The Romans despised 
the uh, the tribes that uh, we associate with modern day Scotland. So they built a wall there, and they um, the Picts is all the words well, is the only word we have for them. There's some sort of tribe of uh, of Scottish people who supposedly fought naked with tattoos or body body paint all over them. And all this stuff, we have the very basic understanding of their culture from things found. But even then, the sources detailing their name, the Picts, it's a Roman name. We don't know their actual name because this is what the Romans said about them. And that's the only source we have. And we know for a fact that many of the times that these sources were written to display them as savages, as unworthy, as useless. Um, and so that comes with an inherent bias. And so this is the way history is treated. And this is the way history has been treated. And in modern day terms, we try, to the best of our ability, to have an impartial view of history, to reassemble history through uh, the lens of unbiased, unfiltered truth. But because humans are naturally biased, that will slip through regardless. You know, history can be found, and yet we only care about it if it's some, you know, say, ancient pharaoh, not some random commoner uh, in Egypt, for instance even though that, that discovery is just as important. And so that really is Sapkowski just throwing shade at the way history has been treated throughout time and the way we still treat history. It's a beautiful meta-commentary and also just absolutely hilarious when you think about it. There, the, we will find out more about you know what that was about and the, the, the half a century of poetry from Dandelion, but... I thought that was very cute and some nice meta text. Uh, speaking of meta textual, through Dandelion, Dandelion basically acts as Sapkowski uh, for some of this chapter, where he just straightly addresses you, the reader, through Dandelion addressing the readers of his memoir, saying, Here, here's the deal. So he addresses the Battle of the Bridge and says, This is what was going on. Yes, it was kind of complicated. But trust me, that's the way military stuff is done. Like, it is not perfect. You know, no plan survives, encounter with the enemy, all that jazz. And that war is chaos. It's not anything but chaos. And so people expecting some sort of grand narrative, some grand uh, heroic ideas, is kidding themselves. And he does that throughout. He has Dandelion talk about the, the, the Battle of the Bridge, sort of uh, talking about the, uh, the the Hansa, basically recapping us, but also through Dandelion saying, Dear reader, if you're confused about this, this is what was going on. And he's basically lampshading and saying, Hey, those expecting um, a grand fantasy epic, you came to the wrong place. This is about you know, people in the middle of a grand fantasy epic and how the details get lost in that quagmire because they are far more focused on their own personal stuff. Uh, he even has a uh, uh, Dandelion joke about uh, the, the Riverdale, how, uh, which is, you know, very similar to uh, Tolkien's elves uh, who all live in this uh, forest and uh, uh, also of a similar name, the Riverdale. And, you know, it's in The Hobbit and they're like these very grand, elegant people. But the people who live in Riverdale and The Witcher are, you know, crass forest men who are sticks in the mud um, and aren't 
of a special name or species. They are just the Riverdellians. I think that's hilarious. Once again, Sapkowski has been mocking traditional fantasy throughout the short stories and all the books, but really the past couple of books, it becomes in the focus in such a way that you just can't help but enjoy the the sheer glee he is having and going, this isn't normal fantasy. If you weren't expecting that, maybe you shouldn't be reading this. And I think that's cute. And of course, the, the entire situation with uh, the Hansa, basically, you know, Milva's getting over her miscarriage. She also has Dandelion basically, again, be him and go, Dear Reader, uh, I can't fully convey the loss that she's experiencing, the pain she's feeling, because I, as a man, don't know what it's like to experience a miscarriage. And I think that um, is actually a real sign of humility on behalf of Sukowski. There's a lot of times where he's uh, very playfully playing the egoist, a, a caricature of himself that he plays up even to this day at cons and interviews and stuff. And in reality, this this kind of humility shows the kind of man he actually is. Um, and he's very clearly being sarcastic in a lot of that stuff, which then, of course, because of the language barrier, leads to a lot of people hating him and blah, 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 blah. I actually quite like Sipkowski and his sarcastic um, and almost uh, comically ego, uh, comically sized ego. I find that enduring and funny. Um, but, you know, this, I think... This kind of shows the ethereal intent with that and how he's actually a lot more humble than he seems on the outside. Then you also have, uh, you know, Milva cutting off her plat, which is a as a cute little, uh, you know, nod to... It's a trope I've seen in a lot of places, um, you know, of the, the either the woman or the man who has basically experienced some loss and they are trying to build their life anew so they do something with their hair to symbolize the change because hair is often some, is something very personal and uh, you, st you style it to show some sort of individuality and so that's an easy way to get people to notice that you are changing um recent examples is miller with his hair styling and the way he shaves his head um in, throughout the expanse or battlestar galactica after the uh new caprica arc where um you know starbuck takes the knife to her hair and cuts and lops an entire section off you know this is very similar it's the morning period is over. I need to change. I need to figure my shit out. I'm a new. I'm a new person. And with that goes away the hair or the in you know metaphorically the spirit of the person that was before. I am a new. You have Geralt getting increasingly uh, depressed as he uh, deals with the limp, deals with the, you know his sort of struggle with dealing with Kahir. Kahir, he has gained respect with him, but he also knows the, the, the fear that Siri had of him, so he's not quite sure how to navigate that, and so he's just becoming increasingly volatile to the point of even uh, trying to disband the Hansa once again, and the Hansa just not having any of it. Um, and then him constantly getting sidetracked, you know, uh, becoming a knight, and how much that fulfilled him to have a purpose again, his name meant something, and then he has to leave because of the priorities of, uh, you know, 
turning away from Siri and he, how he doesn't want to do that, how he's counting the days since he last saw Siri, and then when they encounter the Rivedalians and the Beekeeper, who uh, you know may or may not be lying about the Druids of Kaidu uh, having moved, that they need an escort through this quote-unquote dank forest, and there's this hint at that he's reluctant to help them because he knows it's going to go out of his way and he has no viable way to really trust this guy. And yet at the same time, his unbridled altruism, his good heart, means that he has to do it. He's obliged to do it. Very, very Zoltan uh, uh, from uh, last book where he talked to Zoltan about that. The altruism of taking on these people who clearly didn't need that and in uh, how he clearly didn't want to do it but he did it anyway because it was the right thing to do that has rubbed off on Geralt in some way and there's just like a lot of little itty bitty homages uh like them crossing the bridge I don't know if this was intentional uh but them crossing the Yuruga is very good the bad and the ugly um I you know it it, it might be just like a cute little thing but like it, it, it's very much it, that's what it reads to me but you know uh, him being from Poland and not from America, who knows if that was, you know, something in his mind, but I thought that was cute. The, the, them stealing a mule who later becomes, you know, who's named Dracul, uh, cute Dracula joke there and making ass of himself. That's the joke. And this chapter is far more comedic. You know, last chapter is just so full of anguish and angst and misery that we really needed the fun times in this chapter. On the more serious sides of this chapter, we of course get the, um, you know, the the Amir and Vadier de la plot where we find out that Vadier is, uh, you know, kind of working with Ryans and Vilgaforth, how Amir is getting is sort of getting frustrated with the entire ordeal, wants answers now, uh, hates the fact that Vilgaforth betrayed him, and that Vatier is being Benedict Arnold. Uh, Benedict Arnold in, in the American Revolution was, um, you know, someone working for the revolutionaries, uh, got honeypotted, which is, you know, having a woman from the other side who you don't know is from the other side, sleeping with you and then slipping information to the other side, and it eventually became a full-on traitor. Um, and so Vatier is being honeypotted, being Benedict Arnold, where he is unknowingly releasing information to the Sir Vainid, who's then releasing information to the Lodge of Sorceresses. Um, and so it is, you know, everybody's kind of conspiring, because Vadi wants to take out Skelen for reasons we don't know yet, and uh, Ryan is working with Vadi and Vilgefort and blah 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 for reasons we don't quite know yet, and there's going to be some things there. Everything is just kind of a mess for Nilfgaard right now. They've had a loss, uh, Meeves, uh, you know, continuing her guerrilla war. They've kind of curb stomped many of the other places, but a resistance has started to build up again. Amir really isn't concerned about the war. His efforts are purely on Siri and getting uh, Vilgaforts in his hand. And so it's basically the 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 air around Amir and his uh, his pure authority is there, but it's not as stable as it once was.
Meanwhile, you have Triss finding out that uh, Yen uh, went to Skellica in her teleportation from the lodge, which there's a cute thing where she falls into the water and then uh, is fished up and then a bunch of uh, people beat her with an oar thinking she's some sort of uh, sea creature or a witch or something. And I thought that, like, Sapkowski has gone to great lengths to make his characters non-heroic. Um, and I think that is something very important in this series, is that no matter how fantasy you can get, and no matter how many times he is making jokes at fantasy while using the fantasy tropes, he still will find ways to normalize everything. So, uh, you know, last book we had Yen being woken up from the, uh, the, the compression and then immediately soiling herself. We had a Siri... Um, you know, who wakes up from pure misery and pain that we don't quite know how that happened yet. And, well, uh, you know, the first thing she asks really is for a restroom because, you know, body has needs. And so here we have the grand epic teleportation from the lodge in last book. And you think, oh, she, you know, the, the storyteller goes, we, she went to Skellige. You would think she teleported in and, and took charge and blah, blah, blah. No, she teleported herself in the middle of the ocean, got fished up, got beaten by a bunch of people with oars, taken, uh, put in jail. When the Jarl returned, you know, at first was very angry with her, then released her. Like, this isn't going the way your traditional heroes you know, grand epic journey out of the enemy clutches would go. Um, and so Sukowski finds so many ways to humanize it. You know, that the, the, the big fight with Vilgefortz. You know, we are we are the same, we're so much alike, and then Vilgefortz just trounces him and there was no chance that Geralt stood. That's another inversion trying to make our heroic characters less heroic and make them human. Uh, because the more grandiose you get, while that may look cool, it distances you from the people. It makes them grander when this is a story about people, ordinary people, in grand circumstances. I think that's important to remember when it comes to Witcher, is that it's not your standard fantasy. It's not trying to be. It uses the archetypes, the tropes, the ideas of grand fantasy, and then stomps all over them a micro story within a macro story and i think that's what makes witcher so much fun to me is that it's it's using what has been established in the genre what is common of the genre and doing its own thing with it it's not trying to be intentionally subversive in the way, say, Game of Thrones is. It's trying to be almost congratulatory as well as mocking, almost an, like a uh, like a playful homage kind of thing. And I think that's what a lot of people miss with Witcher, is that they either go with a full subversion, an inversion type thing, a dark fantasy doing dark things, Game of Thrones style, or it's pure Tolkien of grand adventures, not realizing it's kind of a mix of the two, trying to be an inversion, subversion type thing while also deconstructing, while also laughing, while also enjoying the tropes. Um, I think that is something that makes Witcher 
not only unique but fun to me and i think i it's probably the reason i enjoy it more than say game of thrones or even tolkien's work it's because it takes all that stuff jumbles it together and tries something with it instead of going one direction or the other um and i find that fun it's a lovely comedic chapter with some important plot beats here and there but he's primarily to get you to laugh and have a good time because we just watched a bunch of teenagers get beheaded. And next chapter, we get to witness more misery on Siri. So, see you then. Bye.